Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Let's do some review because we're kind of moving a little slowly through 1 Corinthians, but it's, it's good. It's a good slow, kind of like how we're moving slowly through Genesis on Sunday mornings. If you guys remember, the very first section of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses basically 4 through 8, Paul, actually let's go back to verse 2 because this sets the stage for what I want to talk about tonight. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 Paul says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what we said the very first night. These are who? Christians. Christians behaving badly. But they're Christians nonetheless. They are saints, they are sanctified, they've been called, they've been chosen, God has sovereignly chosen, God has sovereignly called them, they are His. And then the issue that starts there in verse 10 is Paul says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all basically get along. There's no divisions. Some of you are following Apollo, some of you are following Paul, some of you are following Peter, some of you are being really, really spiritual and saying we're following Jesus. And so there's this whole issue of division. And then he goes into this whole issue of the foolishness of the cross, the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of Christ, talks a lot about how the cross is an offense. And then last week we looked at how the Holy Spirit is the only one that can open people's eyes to the truth. And he talked about how there's the natural person that doesn't accept the things of the Spirit, and then the Spirit is the one that opens people's eyes to the truth. So he spends almost all of half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 speaking about the wisdom of the cross. Now, in chapter 3, he's going to go back to the issue of divisions because this is a big issue in the church. So he had to spend two chapters reminding them of the cross, and then he's going back to the divisions. So as we come into chapter 3, what I want to begin with is saying that this chapter has produced two erroneous teachings that have emerged that different people have taken that, that are wrong, or I would say you know, erroneous. The first one is purgatory, and we'll get to that. And you may say, how do we get purgatory out of this? And then the other one is what's called the carnal Christian theory. I don't know if you've, has anybody ever heard of the carnal Christian theory? Okay. The carnal Christian theory is that there are three divisions of people. There's the lost, there's the saved, and there's a third group. The third group are saved people who are really acting like they're not saved. They show no evidence of salvation. They act like the lost. They've trusted Christ as Savior, but they haven't trusted Him as Lord. Let me just ask you a question as we've been in 1 Corinthians so far. Has Paul at all introduced a third category as he's been going through here? What's he been doing? There's lost, there's saved. There's no, is there a third category of a Christian that's not really a Christian or that acts like a lost person habitually? Okay, and and you'll see why that comes into play here. Okay, now, also another background thing here is that 
This is Paul's sustained argument that runs from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way to chapter 4, verse 21. So chapter 3 is part of a long argument that he started back in verse 10 of chapter 1 where he's appealing to them to get along. Also, this is the, the framework for the entire issue is the ultimate reason for their divisions and factions is they do not fully understand the implications of the cross. If they understood the cross... And all the implications of the cross, they would not be having these divisions. So let's jump into chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to go back and see how Paul divides this into four main points. Paul has four main points in chapter 3 that, that kind of emerge. So let's, let's read this together. First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk. Not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, you're not of the flesh, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a ward. A reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So Paul has four main points or four main sections in chapter 3. So verses 1 through 4, which I think the ESV does a pretty good job here, if you have the ESV of breaking up the paragraphs, probably the way the thought process of Paul. So here's, here's point number one. Divisions show forth spiritual immaturity. Now, we've already established the fact that they are Christians, right? They have the Holy Spirit, but what's Paul saying? What are they acting like? You guys are acting like little babies. Little immature babies. Little 
infants. Because you're having factions, you're having divisions, you are acting like babies. And Paul says, what does Paul say there? Verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. Now, how many of you have had babies that didn't quite eat solid food and you had to, like, let's talk about projectile vomiting, okay? Is that all right? (laughs) Some babies, they can only take milk. If you start to feed them solid food and they're not ready for it, what do they do? They projectile vomit it, okay? Now, this is a lovely picture, right? How many Christians are projectile vomiting because they can't accept the solid food of the word? They can only accept milk. So let me ask you guys a question. Let's just have a little discussion tonight. What is milk spiritually versus solid food? If Paul says, I couldn't feed you solid food because you weren't ready for it. All I could give you was milk. What is milk? I've listed some things up there, but you guys, let's talk about it. What are some things that could be milk? Okay. Well, let's finish the statement. That's a true statement. Okay. Jesus came to die for your sins. Jesus loves you. Okay. Is that is there anything wrong with that? We're all sitting here saying there's what 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 are you is that what are you saying to that to the neglect of like emphasizing God's love over God's justice? Yeah. And what what the sacrifice of the cross really entailed and really meant. Okay. So making it more man centered that it's all about us as whoops, sorry, as opposed to, to God to to all about God's glory. Okay. I put some things up here, and we can, like last week, we picked on a lot of stuff, so we'll pick on stuff again. You guys okay picking on stuff today? Um, could milk be meaningless praise songs that really have no content? Do you guys know what 7 Eleven songs are? What are 7 Eleven songs? The same seven words, same seven lines 11 times. <laughs> and they really don't mean anything. So, like, I'm not going to pick on a praise song, but, I mean, there's songs out there, and, and, and like, maybe you're on the radio, you're listening to K-Love, and you're, you're, which I don't, I admit, I don't listen to K-Love, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but you, you listen to K-Love, and there's a song that comes on, and you're like, is this talking about a boyfriend and a girlfriend, or is this talking about Jesus? You really don't know. And so, sometimes, the praise songs we sing can be very milky, in the sense that they don't have a lot of content. Now, I'm not here to judge whether, I'm not here to judge different types of praise songs. I'm just saying sometimes we can serve people milk by giving them something really um, shallow. What about a short 15-minute sermonette for Christianettes that focus on stories and life principles but never gets into the text? Would that be milk? If you had somebody that says, um, what would you guys do if somebody stood up and said, today's text is, and they read the text, but they never went back to the text and they spent the next 15 minutes telling stories about their life and then ended with a few principles of how you could be a better person. Would that be, is that popular today? Okay, do you see that a lot today? Okay, and so any time that you shy away from, from depth, um, is, what are some other things? It could be not addressing sin or repentance. We don't want to talk about sin we don't want to talk about repentance. We don't want to talk about anything that would challenge people 
and where they're at. Also, milk could be we're never going to challenge believers to grow in discipleship. We're just going to spoon feed believers just the basics. And now, now, let's just stop. Is there a time and place for milk? Yes. Who needs milk? Babies. Are there such a thing as baby Christians? Yes. Would you expect a brand new Christian to give you a theological treatise on the Trinity and the Athanasian Creed? You know, some of you are like, I don't even know what the Athanasian Creed is myself. All right, but they love Jesus and they've trusted Christ for salvation. So we would expect baby Christians to act like babies and we need to disciple them and we need to feed them milk. But has there come a point where a baby needs to get off the milk and get on solid food? And it may be different for each person, but what happens in a church, let's say the church in Corinth, if everybody's on milk? Is it healthy? What does it look like? If everybody's on milk, what does it look like? Chaos, no growth, like a nursery, like a nursery. That's a great way to put it. It seems like to me because I, you know, teach second graders. Okay. <laughs> that what's really happening here is that there's a lot of hand-holding. So it's not that they don't know. It's just they can't control themselves to act the way they know they should be. So the adult in the room has to constantly be telling them, you need to go over here and do this, and you should be doing this, and you need to go sit in your seat, and you need to stop fighting with that guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I think that what's happening probably in this church is they're still immature, and they cannot do this independently yet. Okay. And so they're still needing an authority figure to come and shepherd them and show them the ropes and how to do that because left to themselves, they're going to fight and they would tear the room apart. Exactly. And that's what Paul says. Paul even addresses it. You guys, this is a nursery. I've walked into a nursery and and somebody's taking away the toys. Okay. Look what he says. I mean, look at verse three. I mean, he says, I mean, that's kind of the paraphrase, but I mean, Paul didn't say you're in a nurse, but this is what he says in verse three. You are still the flesh for a while. There is what? Jealousy. And strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What are they doing? First of all, there's jealousy and strife. And secondly, again, what are they doing? They're creating these factions that focus on personalities. It's personality-driven. We've got the Apollos group over here because he's a really powerful preacher. We listen to his podcast. He's awesome. We've got Paul over here. Yeah, he's deep, and he's more of a shepherd, and he's not quite as good a speaker as Apollos, and we like him. We like Peter because, I mean, Peter was Jesus' right-hand man, so that's who we're, we're focusing on. So they've created these factions, and they're acting like babies. So Paul is not here creating a third category. Yes, Cindy, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And I'm coming close just so I can get you on recording. Oh, great. So, <laughs> I just think, I'm thinking about this, and I think in terms of the church in America, where we see that too, is women's ministry. We only want Beth Moore studies. We only want Kay Arthur studies. We only follow, yeah. and, and you have different Sure. Take that- take your pick. Who, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So you kind of you brought that up, but I mean, I'm of John Piper. I'm of John MacArthur. I'm of Matt Chandler. I'm of David Platt. I'm of Alistair Begg. I mean, whoever you listen to, or maybe I'm of whatever. It's like, or Beth Moore, whoever. Now, we need to talk about the carnal Christian fallacy here because it's pretty popular in some churches. It's this whole idea 
of what they call the carnal Christian. And they use this passage of Scripture to justify the carnal Christian. And what they say is there's a third class of believers called carnal Christians. I don't think Paul is giving a third class of believers here because in chapter 1 he calls them saints. He says they're sanctified. He says they've been set apart by Christ. What he's saying is specifically in the context here is that they're immature in some areas. They're still Christians and they're still growing and they're still using their spiritual gifts. But in this particular area of divisions, they are immature. Now, there is a teaching out there, and maybe you've heard this teaching, that says you don't have to believe in Jesus to be Lord, to be saved. You just have to believe in Him as your Savior. This is called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. John MacArthur wrote an entire book, The Gospel According to Jesus, which is one of the, probably one of the better books out there, the top ten on my list, as far as understanding this, this issue. What they're saying is, some proponents of this movement have actually said that it's possible for a Christian to become an atheist and stop believing in Jesus and still be guaranteed of going to heaven because, after all, it's just a one-time decision to accept Jesus into your heart and the Bible doesn't warn us to persevere in the faith. What do you guys think about that? You've heard that? Is that biblically accurate? Can you be a Christian atheist? Let me give you a quote from a guy who's a proponent of this. This is quoted in John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. Listen to the statement by one of the teachers to see if this makes sense biblically. It is possible, even probable, for a person to become an unbelieving believer. Yet believers who become agnostic are still saved. They're still born again. You can even become an atheist, but if you once accept Christ as Savior, you cannot lose your salvation even though you deny God. Anybody, anybody make sense of that? That's, I think that's someone who believes in the single walk down okay. the altar. Easy believism. Yeah, easy believism. But what they're saying, here's the issue, guys. Let's talk about half-truths here. Do we believe in eternal security? Do we believe in once saved, always saved? Yes, we believe that. We believe if you're truly saved, you can't lose your salvation. So what they've done is they've gone to the far extreme to protect that doctrine by saying that if you ask Jesus into your heart and walk the aisle, you, you're in. And you can live however you want, even up to the point of being an atheist, but as long as at that one point in time you asked him into your heart, you're good. What does the Bible say about perseverance? What does the Bible say about ongoing faith and repentance? Yes. What is easy believism? What is easy believism? What? Charles Finney, okay. You guys have said it. I think, Rod, you mentioned it. Easy believism is all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart, walk an aisle, sign a card, pray this prayer, and you're done. No repentance, no surrender, no understanding of sin and guilt. Just acknowledge mentally that you are not a good person and that you need Jesus. Now, what they've done is they say, you can take Jesus as your Savior, but later on, in a crisis moment in your life, you can really learn to surrender and take Him as Lord. 
Biblically, when you take Christ as Savior, do you take him as Lord? Both, right? Can you, can you trust Jesus as Savior and not as Lord? What most people like, don't they like the Savior part? I get my sins forgiven. I get to go to heaven. I get forgiveness. That's awesome. Most people like that. What's the Lord part? Oh, you mean I have to repent? I have to submit? I have to bow to God's sovereignty? I've got to be totally committed to Christ as my king? That doesn't sound too great. I like the forgiveness of sin thing, but this whole lordship, I don't like that. Can Jesus, will Jesus settle for anything less in salvation? No. Why would you want anything less? Why would you want a Savior who wasn't capable or, I don't know just how to put it, but, you know, if he's not good enough to be your Lord, why is, does he have the power to be your Savior? Well, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, an easy, it's, it's easy believism. I can get to heaven by Jesus, but I don't want to submit to him. I still retain some control. Yeah. Yeah. That there's really no need for me to repent or be concerned about anything. I can just stay on this path. You know, it's wrong. Because I believe your conscience would, and the Holy Spirit would be convicting you if you're really truly a believer. But somewhere in there, you would be comforting yourself with the fact that, hey, yeah, but I'm all right. <laughs> yeah, I think how, think how, go ahead. Him. Yeah, go ahead. I've got a great example of this actually. I had a student a few years ago come in and presented her. I am a Christian. I've been a Christian my whole life. My family's Christian, blah, blah, blah. Okay, you're a Christian. And she can, she's got the terminology. She can say the right things. But when I challenged her with, you're sleeping with your boyfriend, well, we're not doing anything. You are sleeping together in a bed all night in <laughs> a room. Not, and you're not doing anything. <laughs> and, okay, maybe you're not doing anything right this minute. First off, that's not going to last long. Secondly, <laughs> what does everybody else in the entire campus think you're doing? Um, and her response was, well, Jesus understands this is hard for me. <laughs> okay. Well, That's a, he's my savior and he's going to forgive my sins. Right. Not he's my Lord well, and I have to give it up. She could still be a Christian and she would probably be. Well, yeah, but, here, but here's, the, here's the issue. How dangerous is it for a pastor to stand up in church and say, there's a third category. So those of you that are comfortable with your sin and those of you that aren't, in, aren't repenting, because you've asked Jesus in your heart, you're okay. It almost, it almost gives you license to continue doing what you're doing and making you feel good about it. This is coming to me suddenly. I might be pessimistic right now, but this I would even argue that the world, like non-Christians, know that that's not right. Because years ago when Ted Haggard had his thing, the people around me in my building at that time were like, he is such a hypocrite and blah, blah, blah. Well, if they really believed that, they wouldn't have that view. You know, to Ted Haggard, it's just what he's dealing with right now. Of course he can be a Christian and still have that. The world does not belong. Sure, sure, sure. All right, well, let's move. Let's move on. So let's ask the question, what is, in the context of chapter 3, what is spiritual maturity? I think Paul would say it's an appetite for and an ability to digest the spiritual meat of the word. Do you have a passion for the word? Can you accept it? A lack of jealousy and fighting and unity instead of factions. That, that would be spiritual maturity for this church. We're not fighting. 
we don't put leaders up on a pedestal. We don't have factions, and we have a strong appetite for the Word of God, and we can digest meat. Okay? Now, let's move to Paul's second point. His second point is in verses 5 through 17, and he says, Divisions ignore two important truths about Christian leaders. Now, he's moving into leaders because they've been putting these leaders on a pedestal. Apollos, Cephas, Paul. Here's the two things that they don't understand about leaders. Number one, Christian leaders are merely servants, not celebrities who deserve blind allegiance. They're servants. And number two, God truly cares about his church and holds leaders accountable for how they build it. And I put build in quotes because let's just stop. Do we build a church? God builds a church. But Paul's going to use a building terminology here, so we're going to kind of go with that terminology. So let's talk about the agricultural analogy he uses here. So he starts in verse 5 with this agricultural analogy. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, they're just servants, merely servants, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So what's Paul saying there? These guys are only servants. They're not celebrities. Don't put them up on a pedestal. Christian leaders are servants. And who's put them there? What does your text say? God assigned it to them. They just didn't like get in there by manipulation. They didn't get in there by, by somehow their natural gifting. God assigned it to them. And then what did they do? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Verse 7 is very, very important for ministry. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So, who grows a church? God. Who makes Christians? Who makes disciples? But what do we do? It gives us a responsibility. What does it say there? There's two things that we do. We plant and we water. Those are the two things that we can control, which leads us to ask a very, very important question. We, we've got this established, right, that God is the one that causes the increase. God causes the growth. God is the one that causes people to be born again. God causes the growth. If anything spiritual is going to happen, it's going to be God. But he uses our planting and watering to do that. So here's a good question. Here's a practical question. How should we be planting and watering biblically? Is there an unbiblical planting and watering versus a biblical planting and watering? Or have you thought about that? How should we be planting? Here's some questions I'm just throwing out there. Why are we so concerned with numbers? Okay. A church of 10,000 must be a lot more happening and powerful and more doing more stuff than a church of 300, right? Because there's more people. A church of 10 obviously can't be doing anything right because there's only 10. But a church of 500, they must have it right because it's all about numbers, right? I'm playing devil's advocate. You're looking at me like, no. Do numbers matter? That's a hard question. It's a tough one. We should be not increasing the church, always staying the same and don't bring anybody in to the church. Okay. Then numbers do matter. 
Okay, so it goes back to the question of planting and watering. Do, would you, what, is it faithful? Let's take a hyper-Calvinistic view and say, let's not do evangelism. Let's not pray for lost people. Let's not do missions because after all, if God wants to save people, he will save people. So we just sit back and let it happen. Is that biblical? That's what happened to William Carey. You guys know who William Carey was? He's the father of modern missions. He was a missionary to India. He was in England in the late 1700s, early 1800s, part of a hyper-Calvinistic Baptist church, and he had a passion to go to India to do evangelism, to do missions. And the elders of the church sat him down and said, Do not go to the heathen in India. If God wants to save the heathen, he will save the heathen. You don't need to go. Now, William Carey went, and God used him mightily to plant a lot of churches in India. So the question is, what happens when a church stops planting and watering and just gets on a cruise control and says, well, God's going to make, it's not about numbers, God's just going to grow the church. Is there a correlation between this? Should we be planting and watering? What does that look like? Biblically, what is biblical planting and watering? Okay, ministry. I mean, all the different things you can think of. Okay, so evangelism, missions, service. Um, yeah, service. So, like, for example, what was that? Okay, so let me ask you guys a question. Our children tonight, the team kid kids, are, got on our church bus and they went over to the nursing home, Devonshire, to minister. Is that planting and watering? Okay. This Saturday, when our team goes to the rescue mission, is that planting and watering? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Sure, exactly. So there's a correlation there's some human things that only we can do. And I would say that if you're faithful, if we are faithful in what we can do, evangelism, missions, service, ministries, discipleship, if we're faithful in this, faithful to do that biblically, then we trust God to, to build, to grow the church. Um, here's another question. Can a pastor or a Christian leader cause people to become Christians or to grow in Christ? I'd be beating my head against the wall if I thought that every Sunday. If I could make a Christian or if I could produce change. C-A-R-E-Y, like, like for instance. Okay, but here's the other question. Why do we often, and maybe this is a pastor speaking, why do we often think that we can create the growth? And why is it so hard to trust God to give the growth? We want to, Okay. <laughs> We want to see results, don't we? We're results-oriented. If, let me just ask you a question. If, for some reason, in a year's time at Emmanuel, nobody got saved, would you blame me? I would blame me. I think there would be people that would be like, what are you doing wrong, Sean? Okay. 
there are t- right, but I'm saying that oftentimes people put the burden on leaders to produce the results. And it could be that nobody got saved at Emmanuel because none of you brought lost people to church or none of you witnessed to your friends or none of you. I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, I can preach to all the saved people every week, but if you're not bringing lost people or you're not going out evangelizing, don't blame me. I'm, not, I'm just saying that. I'm just saying there's, there's different reasons, but oftentimes we as leaders play this game that we've got to grow God's church and we've got to make it happen. And it's really hard to trust God for the results. Cindy. And it's the first two things of that. One is, yes, it is easy to blame you or other people or, you know, turn around and start infighting over yeah. that. But maybe it isn't that somebody wasn't bringing lost people. Maybe it isn't that you were not being faithful and preaching, you know, the word. Maybe God was doing something else. And I, because his timing isn't our timing. And I look at things like William Carey like people that went out on the mission field and they worked for years and years and years and years and never saw a convert and they got very discouraged and everybody was saying, well, you're obviously not doing anything right. And yet God was planting seeds yeah. that came to fruition in his time. Exactly. One of the things that David and Norm, our missionaries, showed me the first year we went to India that was really, really helpful. They said there's this graph and like, let's talk about your church, like your church explodes with numbers, okay? So, like, let's say this is like year 2000 to 2013, and so like you had this huge explosion of growth in a people group, an unreached people group. This is what the denomination really focuses on is the explosion because, hey, things are happening. He says what you often fail to realize is that there may be 200 years before the graph of faithful planting and watering and discipleship. And the people that are here may never get to see that. And so there's a lot of discouragement there because you're on this side of the graph. But God's in charge. If you're doing everything right as far as biblically, faithfully, you have to just trust in the sovereignty of God that he may not have for you to experience the explosion, but he used you from thousands, maybe not thousands, but many years of planting and watering and then God gave the birth God gave the increase and I just want to just interrupt Margaret for a second make the comment you know prayer is incredible it's the foundation it's the mm-hmm. the work exactly I mean, it is the work yes you don't do the prayer if you're not if we're not praying and we're going to talk about that in a minute it's huge prayer is huge so Paul says we do not pray enough. And Spurgeon said prayer is the work. We often think that evangelism is the work or missions is the work. And yes, it is, but prayer is the work. Yep. Yep. Paul finishes up this agricultural metaphor by saying, You are God's field. But then he says in verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. In, in the sense that there's no competition. They're working together. Those who work together are one. There should be no competition among leaders. There should be, uh, leaders shouldn't elevate themselves or allow themselves to be elevated to a celebrity status of blind allegiance. Because Paul says, we're working together. 
where we're going to receive our reward. We're nothing. God is the one that causes the celebrity. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on a pastor because it's in the news. And Don and I have discussed this. We talked about this guy the other day, and it's his own business. But I will just mention, you guys ever heard of Stephen Furtick? Really popular pastor now. He's in North Carolina. He's in Outreach Magazine's top five fastest-growing churches in the United States. Ten, ten years ago, he had 12 people in his basement. Now he runs like 30,000 people in his church. F-U-R-T-I-C-K, Elevation Church, North Carolina. Okay. Two years ago, his church did a documentary on the rise of the church. I watched the documentary. The entire documentary was about how he had built the church. And everything was about him. And the people that were interviewed did not talk much about God, but they talked about him. And the very last scene of the documentary, it almost looked like a Michael Jackson moment. It's him on stage. The whole stage is dark except for one spotlight comes down upon him, and there's thousands of people out there cheering, and that's how it ends. That's how the documentary ends. Now, here's that, that's a few years ago. Here's how he's getting in trouble now. Recently, they purchased land, and they have, are building a 16,000-square-foot home, which costs, yeah, which costs over $1.7 million. His family live in $1.7 million house, and they've been real secretive about it. And it's in secluded with no trespassing. The house has 7.5 bathrooms, an electric gate, and is larger than the coach of the Carolina Panthers' home. So he, the pastor of this church, has the largest house in the community. And Don and I said it's his business, whatever house he wants to buy. But the point is, and I'm not here to pick on this pastor, but there's some telltale signs that he's allowed himself to be elevated to a celebrity status in just a short amount of time. And um, it was interesting because he had a Code Orange conference a few years ago where Matt Chandler preached, and Matt Chandler's was, was basically preempted. He, he, I mean, he, he was preaching the gospel, and then he was basically, um, they showed Stephen Furtick as Matt Chandler was preaching, and he had this angry look in his face like, I do not agree with what you're preaching because Matt Chandler was, the whole thing was the Bible's not about you. It's about Christ. <laughs> and so anyway, sometimes we can elevate pastors and sometimes pastors can elevate themselves or we can put Christian leaders on a pedestal. And what does Paul say here? Don't do that. Look back at verse um, five. We're merely servants. We're just servants. And so here's what I think the agricultural metaphor is helping us think about. If we think of the church from an agricultural aspect, then we can rest in the sovereignty of God to bless in His timetable and in His ways through the faithful planting and watering of the gospel. Okay? Well, can I ask you a question on verse 9? Yes. Yes. You've never. Yeah. Well, you're never going to run. You are the field. Yeah. Yeah. You are God's field. We, as the church, are a field that needs to be cultivated, and people need to plant and water into us, and then the leaders need planting and watering. Nobody has ever arrived. Have you ever made a Christian that says, "I've arrived"? Did I tell you guys? I'm gonna pick another pastor. 
Can I just pick on another pastor? And we'll be done with picking on pastors. I think I've told you the story before. You guys know who the Raging Cajun is? Jesse Duplantis. He's like a word faith teacher. On tele- he's like from Louisiana, and he's like a stand-up comedian pastor with slick back white hair. And Anyway, I was slipping through channels on TBN, which I don't recommend doing. And um, I came across him. I'm like, this guy is crazy. What's the deal with this guy? And he stood up there, and he said, I've gotten to the point. He's not like his Cajun accent. I've gotten to the point where I don't sin anymore. And you Christians out there, if you sin... Just tell, I've, I've just gotten the point. I've told the devil to leave me alone. The devil leaves me alone, and I don't ever sin. And so if you're struggling with sin, Christian, you just haven't arrived like I've arrived. Verbatim is what he said. And I thought at that moment, either God's going to strike him or something's <laughs> going to happen. But he was basically berating the congregation for sinning because he'd arrived, and he just tells the devil to get away, and he doesn't sin anymore. What does First John say? He who says he's without sin is a liar. Okay, now Paul's going to shift gears. He gives two analogies. He gives an agricultural analogy, planting, sowing, field, but then he's going to give an architectural analogy. So verses 9b through 15, he, he, says, he shifts and says what? You are God's building. It's a building terminology now. And now he talks about being a master builder and laying a foundation and building on the foundation and building with building materials. So now it's a building metaphor. So here's the ultimate question. I think hopefully you guys get the answer. You can give the Sunday school answer on this and get it right. What should the foundation of a church or ministry ultimately be? Jesus. What does Paul say there? Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus. Now, in the first analogy, God owns the field and he causes the growth. In the second analogy, there's something a little bit different. He's focusing a little bit more on Christian leaders. God owns the building, but yet he also judges the quality of each man's work as he builds on the foundation. So what the focus here is on is the accountability of leaders and how they do ministry. And how they, I don't like these word build a church, but Paul's terminology, how, how Christian leaders, pastors, teachers, elders, deacons, leadership, how we do ministry and build a church, Paul's saying that we're going to be held accountable for that. Now, even with Jesus as the foundation, Paul is saying there's still a danger of shoddy workmanship and inferior materials that Christian leaders would use to build upon the foundation of the cross. What does he say there? What two types of materials are there that you can build upon? Two kind, the kind that won't withdraw, withstand fire, what, wood, hay, and straw, that's inferior materials, shoddy materials, or the kind that survived the fire, gold, silver, and precious stones. So let's ask another interesting question tonight. What would be examples of building a church with wood, hay, and straw? You never heard what? Somebody said I never heard. Oh, man-centered. Yes. What'd you say? Gimmicks. Gimmicks. What's a gimmick? Okay, so what's an example of a gimmick? It was something you'd bring people in with. Okay, we're going to have a motorcycle guy do stage diving with lights and action, and we're going to give away a free iPad every Sunday so people will show up. I was a youth pastor for eight years, guys. Let me tell you, you can get kids coming. If you give pizza and have cool stuff... You can get a crowd to come. 
I guarantee you, I mean, I can guarantee you would have 100 kids here tonight if we did something entertaining. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for entertainment. I'm not saying there's no place for fun. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But if you build your ministry on those things, the question is, will they survive? Now, what does Paul say here? This is where you've got to be really careful. If anyone builds, verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work, work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In the context, what is going to be judged? Is it the person's salvation? It's the work of the leaders and how they built the ministry of the church. So who's accountable here is he talking about? He's talking about Christian leaders. He's talking about pastors. He's talking about those that are in Christian leadership. We will be held accountable at the end of the age in how we did ministry and building upon the foundation of Christ. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It has nothing to do with purgatory. It has nothing to do with, with, with anything related to your salvation. It's the quality of the work. So here's where purgatory gets confusing. This is not purgatory. Okay, this is where the Catholics come in and say, okay, there you have purgatory. Somehow they get purgatory out of that. It is the quality of the work that's revealed by fire, not the people themselves. And verse 15 is very confusing. What does verse 15 say? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It makes it sound like there's some people that are going to barely get into heaven by the skin of their teeth, depending on how good their works were. Does anywhere else in the Bible confirm that? That you barely get into heaven and that it's based upon... It's very confusing. So let me, let me just finish this statement here real quick. Verse 15 is very confusing, has been abused to show that one who suffers loss and escapes is a carnal Christian who barely makes it to heaven by the skin of their teeth. Instead, what Paul is talking about here, Paul is talking about the work of Christian leaders who build ministries and churches with materials that will not withstand the final day. In other words, do you realize that it's possible to build a church on shoddy material and it looks good on the outside and people may be coming and it may have all this buzz and everything, people may be enjoying great things about it, but there is no foundation of Christ and no gospel-centered truth there it's kind of scary isn't it because what does paul say it's going to it's going to burn now deborah i'll get to your question in just a minute but i want to just put these things up here the american church american churches are very successful at being built on these things you guys tell me if you agree charming personalities engaging speakers quality entertainment marketing expertise managerial skills powerful technology and stellar programs and human ingenuity. Do you think most churches in America that make the list of the greatest top popular churches in America are built on those things? Are those things going to burn? Whose cares if you had a cool PowerPoint presentation? I mean, it's helpful. We're using PowerPoint tonight. Let's just stop and talk about Wood, hay, and straw. Deb, you had a question. I'm sorry. I, I... Well, okay. This is what's going to um, There's always been since Jesus' day, false 
proper thing mm -hmm. to be true, mm -hmm. always. Even False teachers, yes. There's more so now. Yes. With this stuff, or not, because they didn't have it back then. So now, so there are people that they'll go to heaven... These aren't, the, these aren't the ones that are the false teachers. Is that what you're saying? Because the ones that teach Jesus and the gospel are not false. Right. I don't think he's talking about necessarily false teachers here. I think what he's saying is, because he doesn't use the term false. I think he's saying, go back. Let's, there's, a, there's a clue here in the text, and, and we forgot to look at it. Go back to verse, um, verse 10. Look at the end of verse 10. Yeah, 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 false teachers, yeah, yeah, false teachers, this is, I don't think he's, I mean, it could be about false teachers, but look at ver the end of verse 10, let each one take care, I don't know what your translation says, mine says take care how he builds upon it, so what I think he's saying to Christian leaders is, you need to really pay attention and be careful in how you build on the foundation of Christ, the ministries of the church, to make sure that what you are building is going to last, Okay. Robert Schuller, the Crystal now, Cathedral. Now, and his son, his son seemed to get it at the end. I don't know if he followed it, but his son seemed to really. Yeah, now they're defunct and gone well, bankrupt. Son, and yeah. yeah. I mean, but his dad was, it was just interesting to me. I mean, his dad was always known to be a great speaker. Right. And great entertainer. And yeah. No. As a matter of fact, he, would, he has, as a matter of fact, said, if you listen to the White Horse Inn, he said, I will not preach sin because that hurts people's self-esteem. Yeah. And that's probably what happened is, is that his son was preaching the real gospel and people just kind of fled to the hills because they never heard the therapeutic. Here's the point, though, and, and, and this, this brings back, Ann, to what you were saying earlier. All of that stuff can happen in a church, but be power, be, but be absent the Holy Spirit anointed preaching of Jesus and Him crucified. So let's just ask a question. And this is this gets back to your point, Ann. What are the two most important things we can do as church members? Pray for God to move in mighty ways through the power of His Holy Spirit. Pray, and pray for the powerful preaching and teaching of the gospel, and plant and water. Are we praying for a powerful movement of God? Are we praying for the gospel to go forth in power? Are we praying for God to do only what God can do? Are we praying for conversions? Are we praying for the cross to be central? And we know, guys, when we pray for that and when we put that out there, what did we look at a few weeks ago? Is the cross moronically foolish? Yes. Is it offensive? Yes. Is it a stumbling block? Yes. But does it save people? Yes. So why try all these tricks and gimmicks that in the end don't produce the don't have the power of Christ. Why would you not want the power of Christ? And that's that's the whole issue. At the end of the day, here's the question: Whom as a church are we trying to impress? The world or our Lord, who will judge how we built on His foundation in the church? So we plant, we water, knowing all along it's God that does the growth. So here's the takeaway from these first this this first section. First couple of sections. Christian leaders are merely servants. Christian leaders are accountable in how they quote-unquote build the church. Only God can cause any true growth, and God will judge the leader's work and how they built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go to his third point, Paul's challenging warning in verses 16 and 17. This is a, this is a warning. 
Verse 16. I'll give you guys the southern version. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? And the reason I did that is because it's a plural there. In the Greek, do you not know that you guys, you plural, you guys, <laughs> you guys. And actually, hopefully your ESV, if it's like my ESV has a footnote down there that helps you with the Greek that says the Greek for you is plural. It's helpful because Paul here, later on in chapter 6, he's going to talk about how the individual is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here he's talking about how the church is the temple. The church as a body is the temple. And who lives in us as the church? The Holy Spirit. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? So let's ask a question about temple imagery here. What's the ultimate definition of a temple? Old Testament. It was God's place where he chose to dwell. So let's just do a little bit of history. What was the tabernacle? It was the portable tent in the wilderness where God chose to dwell. Okay, so, so tabernacle means what? It's a tent. It was called the tent of meeting. It's a tent where God chose to dwell. His presence, the tabernacle. Okay, when Solomon, what did Solomon do? He built the temple. So now you have a structure, permanent structure, where God chose to dwell. What happened in 536 B.C.? Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed okay in the book of ezekiel god promises that there's going to be an end times temple now before you get all ooh, we're going to get all into revelation we may a little bit let's talk about the end times temple some of you think i'm talking about the fact that there's plans to rebuild a temple in Jerusalem and it's going to be built and then during the seven-year tribulation, all this guys that's not what it's talking about here. Let's let the Bible, let's let the New Testament writers tell us what the end times temple is. Okay, you guys ready to do that? What does the New Testament tell us about a temple? You guys ready? All right, let's go to John. It's on the screen. So John 1.14. The Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus Christ came to earth and dwelt as a man, He what? He tabernacled in the sense that Jesus is now what? Could we say Jesus is the temple? Yes. Who is the end times temple? Jesus, because he came and he tabernacled. And if you don't take my word for it, take Paul's word for it, because what does Colossians say? Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The full presence of God dwells in Jesus in the body. Now, you've got tabernacle, temple imagery there related to Jesus. Let's let Jesus answer the question about the temple. Okay, you ready? John 2, 18-22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? The destruction of the temple. 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days and I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what's the temple? Jesus. Okay. John tells us that Jesus is the temple. Who else is the temple? What did Paul just say? You are the temple. So which is it, Sean? Is Jesus a temple or are we the temple? Yes. Let's let Paul tell us in another place what the temple is. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 20. So then, he's speaking to Gentiles here. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Is the temple a literal structure here? Jesus is the cornerstone who's building his temple. You are that temple. Okay, if that's not enough to understand it, let's see how Peter interprets it. We've looked at John. We've looked at Paul. Let's look at Peter, and let's let these New Testament writers tell us what to believe about the temple. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What's a spiritual house? A temple. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So, what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians is, is that the church is the dwelling place of the very Spirit of God. And so we are the temple we have the Holy Spirit. We are sacred. We are a holy priesthood. God has chosen to dwell with us. Now think about the implications for Sunday morning when we gather bodily as a corporate family. Is the Holy Spirit in each of us individually? Yes. But think about how powerful it is when we gather as a church family, the Holy Spirit in us. The, the, we are the corporate church, the temple to offer praises to God, it makes it even more powerful. But look at verse 17. There's a very strong warning there. What does verse 17 say? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. There's a very strong warning here, not only to Christian leaders, but to anyone who would want to destroy the church. We need to be aware of leaders who try to build on the foundation with wood, straw, and hay. So here's some other things. I've written these down. We can discuss these. What are some ways that leaders or anyone can possibly destroy the church? Heresy and false teaching. Shallow man-centered techniques to get decisions but not true disciples. Gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, factions building the church on personalities, programs, and popularity instead of the foolish message of the cross. Do those things destroy a church? This is a strong warning 
And this goes back to your false teachers. I mean, how does God feel about people that are going to destroy his church? And does God mince words here? I will destroy him. Now, let's just talk, and we've talked about this before. Is there a difference between a baby Christian? We've talked about the context here. Is there a difference between a baby Christian that doesn't really know a lot versus a person that comes in knowingly trying to cause division and destroy the church? Yes. I think what Paul is saying is that either way, if there's a, if there's a baby Christian that's acting out of control and trying to destroy the church, what should the church do? Step in, step in and guide and discipline and instruct and, and come along. If it's a wolf, what should you do? Shoot the wolf. Yeah, you should. No, I'm serious. You probably should. Not literally. Okay. Yes. And if you come alongside and you disciple and you discipline and you reach out and, and they respond, that's a baby Christian growing. If they don't, right. then you need to go with There's a difference between these two things I'm writing on the board here. There's a, there's a hurting sheep, a sheep that hurts, and a prowling wolf. But often they look the same, don't they? Because the Bible says a wolf can be in sheep's clothing. A herding sheep would be a sheep. A herding sheep is a true Christian that is just hurt. And so they lash out or they're bitter or they're causing division or they have an attitude problem and they're, they're just hurt. And the way, that they're doing, the way they're dealing with the hurt is they're acting out causing chaos. Okay? And they're really truly a Christian and they're just, they just need help. A wolf in sheep's clothing comes in knowing that he's going to destroy. Now, most false teachers don't come in with name badges saying, Hello, I'm Woofie. Watch out for me. They come in and they sneak in and they creep in unaware. But there is a danger here of Paul saying, in the context, let's keep the context in mind here, guys. He's saying that it is possible to build a church and in the process destroy the church. That's scary. Can you build something so much so that it, did you destroy it? Go ahead, Don. You were going to say something. Well, I'm just thinking that really overall, though, they can't really destroy the church because God's right. church will prevail. The body of Christ will prevail. But does, I mean, I guess local bodies of Christ could be scattered. Yeah. They can, so that no longer exists. Yeah, they, they, won't, they won't destroy, quote-unquote, the church universal. But have you guys seen local churches been blown up? Local churches been um, split where they've scattered and then who, who's left may not even be a real church afterwards. And the, real, the true church is scattered to other churches. Um, so let's look at this last section and then we'll leave some, some time for questions. Um, Divisions ignore what we enjoy as Christians. This last section is kind of hard to understand, but Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For as written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. What I think Paul's saying is this. Whoops. 
If you think you're all that by trusting in personalities, power, prestige, possessions, and popularity instead of the foolish measures of the cross, you're deceived and you're building your life, ministry, and church on sinking sand. And then he quotes from the Old Testament here. He quotes from Job 5.13, which says, He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. And then Psalm 94.11, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. What does he say in verse 21? Let no one boast in men. What was their problem all along? Going all the way back to verse 10 of chapter 1. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I am setting these men up as pedestals and I'm boasting in men. I'm boasting in what these men have done. I'm putting my trust in men. And so what Paul's saying is don't boast in men. Don't put a preacher up on a pedestal. Don't focus on what men can do. Don't be man-centered. Don't push the cross to the side and exalt human ingenuity. Don't do it. But here's the paradox. We think, this is where we play these games. We think if we just had power, popularity, prestige, and possessions and personalities, we would have it made as a church. We would be set. We would have all that man can produce. Don't you think some people would think that? If we just had the right machinery and the right programs and the right speaker and all this stuff, all the money in the world, we'd have it set. And the world would look at us and think, man, you guys have got it all together. But notice what Paul says here. Paul says, whoops, did she not put that on there? Paul says, all things are already ours. Notice what he says there at the very end. The very end of verse 21, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's. And he mentions five things that Christ has victory over. Things that weigh us down in this world. The world, life, death, present, future. Pretty comprehensive, right? The world, life, death, present, future. Christ has victory over all of that. All of that is yours in Christ. You have victory over the world. You have life. You have victory over death. You have victory in your present. You have victory in your future. Because why? You, verse 23, you are who? Christ's. So what does Romans 8, 35 and 39 tell us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake? We're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the bottom line for Paul at the end of chapter 3. The bottom line is this, you're Christ's. You belong to the sovereign God and have been saved by grace, and He is your treasure. Therefore, because you are Christ, therefore, put your hope, don't, don't put your hope in man or personalities or techniques 
or gimmicks or whatever else you want to say, wood, hay, or straw, to try to force growth or build your ministry upon things that don't last. Instead, trust in the sovereignty and goodness of God to build His church and rest secure that no matter what happens, you belong to Christ. That's the bottom line of this whole chapter. Now, what I want us to do is turn to Matthew chapter 16 as we close tonight and look at what Jesus says. Matthew 16, 13. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. This is the famous confession of Peter, but I want us just to look at it and see how it kind of parallels to chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's Peter's confession. What does Peter say? You are the Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the Son of the living God. So who is Jesus? He's absolutely Christ, the Son of the living God, who died on the cross and rose again. Now, what did Paul say all through 1 Corinthians so far? It's about Christ and Him crucified. How do you know this? You don't know this unless the Holy Spirit reveals this to you. What's the next thing that Jesus says in verse 17? Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, how did you figure out this? Was it because you were so smart and you were so, in, you, know, you were so clever? No, God opened your eyes to see who I am. That's the only way people are going to see who Christ is, is if the Holy Spirit does that work to reveal Christ to them. Then here's verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, there's some confusion here because the Roman Catholics say he's the first pope. And Peter's the rock upon which the church is built. Let's not swing so far the other way that we're so afraid to deal with Peter here. Because Peter's mentioned. Peter, you are a rock. And I'm going to... On, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The rock is Peter's confession. But let's just talk about Peter for a moment. Who preached the first Christian message? Peter, who was the founder of the church after Pentecost? Peter. So he did have an important role. His confession of Christ being the Son of the living God was the confession that Christ was going to build his church upon. But I want you to notice something. What Jesus says, I will build my church. Whose church is it? Whose church is it? Jesus. Who's the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Okay. Number two, who builds the church? Okay, Jesus builds the church. Now, what do we do? We plant, we water. God causes the increase. But we also, according to Paul, we build on the foundation of Jesus with things that hopefully will last. But then he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Will the church die? Will the church fail? It may look like it at times. If you look at numbers. If you look at influence, if you look at prosperity and popularity and prestige, it may look like the gates of hell are prevailing. 
But you have to step back and say, if Christ promises to build it, and it's his church, and he causes the growth, then you can rest assured that all that God calls you and me to be is faithful. And let God do the rest. Christ will build his church.